Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of How to Live the Podcast. We are Jess and Steph Dadon, and we are so happy you tuned in. How's your week going, Steph? It's going pretty good, Jess. How's yours? Pretty freaking great because we've actually been working remotely this week. Um, Our whole office has gone on holiday. So it's been so nice to get out of the office, get down to the beach and let those creative juices flowing. It can be super hard to be creative when you're in an office. Totally. It's been a really nice little change of scenery. So last week was Fashion Revolution Week, which is basically a week dedicated to promoting transparency in the fashion industry. We released a couple of videos and a photo series to show you who creates Tubes shoes. So you'll have to go check that out at Tubes on Instagram, spelled T-W-O-O-B-S. In case you didn't know. Yeah, you should know. And given today's guest is a member of the Fashion Revolution Advisory Board, we thought it was totally fitting. Last week, we sat down and chatted to Claire Press. So in addition to being on the Fashion Revolution Board, she is Vogue Australia's sustainability editor at large, which is actually the first time Vogue have introduced that role. How cool is that? So cool. She's also the author of three books, The Dressing Table, Wardrobe Crisis, and Rise and Resist. And she has her own podcast called Wardrobe Crisis. We chatted to Claire about everything from her time as a journalist, interviewing Kim Kardashian, Iris Apfel, and Beyonce, what it's really like to work in the fashion industry, and of course, all things sustainability and fashion. And if that's sounding a little scary to you right now, Claire is totally real and honest. She's not perfect herself. Let's be honest, no one is. And she gave some really simple tips on how anyone can start taking steps towards making more sustainable fashion choices. Stick around to the end to hear what we have in store for you next week. And we also have an answer to one of our listeners' question. It's a good one. All right, let's get into it. Here's our chat with Claire Press. So how long have you been in Australia for? Since I was 22 or 3. So just long enough to keep the amazing British accent. <laughs> I'm married to an Australian, so I have to fight to keep this British accent. It's oh, so yeah, good. It's, you've got it strong, though, and you must have been around Australians for a while, so good job. Our dad moved here from France when he was about 23, and he thinks he sounds Australian but has a thick French I love accent. a French accent. Do you have one? No. no. <laughs> He's like the one person we can't imitate. Like, I can do British, but I cannot do French. I expected you both to look at me and go, no. And they're like, nah. Like, nah, mate. He, he says mate in like this. He can do like the mate in Australian. So like the whole the whole sentence is French. And then the end, we'll just be like, mate. And it sounds really odd and weird. I love language. I love the word mate. I actually used it this morning on Instagram. It makes me laugh. I love the richness of different words and language. And I think that that's something charming. Mate is a little bit British as well, right? All right, mate. Yeah. It, it. It, yeah. <laughs> if you say it with a British accent, anything is British, it's right? true. Benjamin. <laughs> <laughs> Kangaroo. I'm not playing this game. That's <laughs> a serious question. <laughs> we will in a little bit, but before we get to that, we want to hear all about your fabulous fashion career and what that was like. Was it very Devil Wears Prada? That's what we always get asked. You know, there are elements of that that do exist within the industry, and I think that those cliches always are born from some kind of truth. I'm not just talking about magazines, but the whole kind of fashion setup in the olden days used to be quite kind of based on fierce hierarchy. And if you were the intern, then you couldn't look at anyone. And I know it sounds absurd, but actually there is an element of truth in it. 
mm-hmm. I do think, um, however, that that stuff is old fashioned. So The Devil Wears Prada is one of my favorite films. I mean, think about Meryl Streep going, that's all. I know. <laughs> it's so dead. Brilliant. Now, I've never worked for that kind of character, but you certainly have seen it, felt it, that kind of, I'm going to say culture of fear. Yeah. That I think kind of ripples through old fashioned fashion. And I use that phrase deliberately because I think we're in a new era where that stuff is just absolute rubbish and we shouldn't and mustn't put up with it and also it's just changing like you've got a new guard of people who are now running fashion and it's much more diverse much more egalitarian and damn well should be right because who wants to go to work and be scared you know of the designer who you're not allowed to look at or whatever it is I think it's similar in other creative industries music for example Mm. Um, this is just apocryphal and probably isn't even true but and I'm talking about someone who I absolutely love and he's one of my idols so I hope it's not true but I was always told because I did used to work at Rolling Stone that you were not allowed to look at Bob Dylan in the eye Mm -hmm. it's interesting don't look at Bob don't look look at Bob (laughs) it is an interesting one though I feel like it goes along with like just fashion in general becoming more relaxed you know like in the olden days as you're putting it like Fashion was, I feel, much more serious. And if you were interested in fashion, it had to be very highbrow. Whereas now, you know, everyone's still in sneakers in the office. Like there's that level of casualness. The casualization of fashion and culture is a real thing for sure. Um, But I also think that when we talk about kind of changing guards and changing society, it's about a democratization. So people are just fed up with someone on high telling them how it's going to be. And if you look at how social media has changed the whole of the media game, then that's kind of an example of that. Because you two can create a whole world and build your whole incredible audience for how to live. You can do that from your living room. You can do that from, I know your story about saying, I'm just going to email some fashion shows in Paris and say, can I come? And the answer was yes. Yeah. So we're in a different world now where the walls have come down and you actually can, if you've got talent and a fresh idea and a strong voice, you can break through. And that's rad. But as I'm saying that, I'm also thinking there was also always that element of fashion. And that's the bit I love. Like, it's not that we never had that possibility. If you look at the coolest kind of fashion in the 80s or the ways that fashion shows used to run before they became corporatized, they were always overrun with amazing fashion students. It was like getting into a nightclub. Like Mm -hmm. if you had the right look, then they would let you in. And I think that's gone because of the corporatization of it. So there's just never a... There's never a kind of one answer. But I think you're right in in terms of like this democratization of fashion. The way we got into the fashion industry was totally in the back door. And so then when we're building our own company and we're hiring people, it's not going to be that traditional stuffy Devil Wears Prada. That's all. Even though I do like to say that to our employees just for fun. Um, You know, it was always going to be like, okay, well, this is fun. We got into this in a fun way. Let's create that for our team. We want them to have the same experience with fashion that we've had. Totally. One of my favorite subjects is business with purpose and just that word purpose. Like how do we want to live? How do we want to work? And how are we going to organize our worlds to reflect that, I guess? So again, it's like old guard, new guard, but the old way of I want status, I want money. I just think that's really old fashioned. And I don't really meet a lot of young people who feel that that's what they're trying to pursue. Like if you ask them to make a list of their life goals, they're not going to say... Maybe some of them are, but those that I meet are not saying money, status. They're saying fulfillment. Lifestyle. Feeling that I'm doing something worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and feeling Um, valued. Also having an environment that's nurturing and that is fun and that is somewhere you want to go to work. And if you're going to build a workplace, 
that's the kind of workplace I want to build. I mean, I didn't because my workplace is just me and my cat. Yes. Oh, oh. But I've heard it's a really good place to work, it's though. Awesome What's your cat's name? Pix. Cute. <laughs> Pix is my only, my first and only employee. Ah, maybe meow. you should get Pix a friend and then you could have two employees. <laughs> Stop now. I'm going to get an army and I'm going to say, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> we actually have, um, like, we try really hard in our office to have, like, great office culture, obviously, because our brand is all about fun and having fun with fashion. And you can't really say those things without actually doing them from the inside out. And so we do things like we watch The Bold Type on Thursdays at the moment. And when Younger comes out, we're going to watch Younger on Fridays. And, like, we love just, like, TV. We even snaps on Friday afternoon where we all sit around and like share something delicious and we write down like nice compliments for each other for the week. Which See, we all want to I do want vision to work boards. with you. you can, can I come and work for you? For sure. Absolutely. Well, that, that was our next question. Do you want to come work with us? <laughs> sure. You can be our sustainability, our sustainability go, go advisor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, there you go. You just gave your own title. <laughs> well, speaking of Devil Wears Prada, which is obviously we all know based on Vogue, you well i don't think it's necessarily based on vogue lauren weisenberger did work at american vogue so mm-hmm. i guess her experience or her observations about the industry broadly probably colored her narrative i've never met her so i've never asked her i don't know but i think it's well, more of a broad commentary on just what that kind of environment and it could be a fashion house too it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be mags it's like that's just that kind of great frightening fascinating cliche of what traditional scary fashion land might look like but it is also like highly camp and a send up you know it's not life's not really like that yeah it's so much fun we all love it um but i was trying to segue into vogue so we could talk about the fact that you are the sustainability editor at large of vogue and we would love to hear about that i mean i feel like editor at large is the fanciest title ever We'd love to know what it actually yeah, what, means. Yeah, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. Can you like, tell us? Don't ask me. It's so hard to explain <laughs> what it means. Um, I can explain the sustainability part, but if you want me to explain the large part just briefly, first of all, it basically means that it's almost like roving. I mean, I am at large in the world. I don't work in the office. I could go in there if I wanted to, but I'm not based in the office, so I'm a kind of roving creature, but I'm not a freelancer, so I don't work for other magazines. It reminds me of the guy on, he was a judge on America's Next Top Model, and he was an editor at large. Andre. I think of Vogue. Tally. Oh, Andre Tally. Tally. Oh, I love A-L-T. Andre Tally. Yeah. I mean, he's just the best person. Mm, I just think Great that, documentary. Come on, the best documentary. Mm. I'm obsessed with fashion films. And I thought that was a wonderful, amazing portrait of a man who's just a true original. And how does he dress? I love it. I love it's it. It's amazing. Mm. It, the this whole thing kind of broke fashion. my heart, though, to be completely honest. I did like, it. I felt sad afterwards. But anyway, you guys will have to go watch it for yourselves. I'll have to watch it. I haven't watched it um, yet. Another one, if we're going to plug film. So I'm fascinated by fashion stories and it was always the characters as opposed to, as I said, the kind of status or money or whatever. It was always the people that fascinated me and drew me to this world. And I'm looking at the back of your laptop and there is a sticker of Iris Apfel, like a cartoon Iris head. Mm. Those characters, that's why I like clothes. She's amazing. She's like out of this world. She is a cartoon character in real life. I interviewed her. <gasps> oh my goodness. Stop. We were going to ask you about Kim Kardashian, but that I don't know. Iris Atfell is way better. Can you dish on that interview? Um, it was. I'm sorry to have to admit this because it's a shame, but it was on the phone. But it's actually quite yeah. a good story, though, because it was on the phone. She couldn't hear a word I was saying. <laughs> and I had, because I adored her, and, you know, I've read her rare bird of fashion book and I've watched her film, but I've also just done quite a lot of research into the clothes and the history of how she collected. Um, 
I had put in a hell of a lot of work into this interview and crafted these really fascinating questions. I knew she was going to vibe off them. But the interview is me saying long-winded questions and her going, what? (laughs) What? What was that, dear? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, Uh, sometimes it's not as glamorous as you think it is. Well, could Kim Kardashian hear you when you interviewed her? Kim Kardashian was a lot of fun. You know what? She is what you see is what you get. And she's actually a pretty cool person. And there's no secrets there. So, again, she's a person who I think really thrives in this new era where you can't hide Mm -hmm. because actually she's really authentic to herself she's not fake Mm. so I actually loved her in what capacity did you interview her oh it's just a story about how fabulous she was I mean I used to do a lot more a printed story yeah I used to do a lot more of those kind of celebrity interviews than I do now I spent six or five years as the features director of Australian Vogue a long time ago so in the I think I left in 2009 that job Mm -hmm. and then I also worked I've worked at Marie Claire. I was a fashion editor at To Large again there. Um, so I interviewed a lot of designers for that. I, um, I've had a kind of long career of interviewing all different people. And at different stages of my career, they've been either really famous actors or... I used to work at Rolling Stone when I was really young. I was after Oyster, I worked at Rolling Stone um, for a year. It was really great. So I interviewed loads of famous rock stars. That's cool. really that cool. And we saw Beyonce as well. You have a great list going. Do you know what? Um, Beyonce was a really interesting interview. It was I was at Vogue at the time, but in my previous incarnation. She was less famous than she is now. But it's interesting just to think how the era has changed in terms of access to talent or interview subjects. I went to New York. I saw her three separate times to do this story. I went to the studio where she was recording there were no there must have been record company people there but there weren't minders there trying to stop you or make sure you only ask questions for two minutes that they'd already seen before it just wasn't like that Mm. like it was really there was lots of open access she was incredibly open and we weren't kind of micromanaged in the way that now the media is so micromanaged yeah you can't interview anyone without having to say here are my three questions in advance are they okay with 12 pr people come on well, yeah. we're interviewing you right now and you didn't say that to us, so thanks. No way, man. I would not ask for questions. I might ask for talking points so that I could prepare, yeah. so that I could not let you down, but I don't believe that journalism is about a staged script. Interestingly, when I do my podcast, I do actually provide quite robust questions in advance, but that's so that I can anchor myself. Mm-hmm. And I like it when the guests don't read them. <laughs> Because I yeah. want them just to answer. Same, yeah. I mean, like, we have, like, lengthy questions written down. You know, we do, like, write the interview, even though, like, it takes its own life. Um, but it's always a bit more fun and a bit more fresh when they haven't quite prepared every answer. As someone who's worked in this space for a long time and watched the evolution of that micromanaging thing I just said, you don't get you really don't get the best out of people if they've pre-prepared answers. And Mm. I do understand that people don't want to be ambushed if, for example, they're actors and they're quite private and they're talking about a film. I get that. However, as a journalist, it's rubbish. Who wants that? Who wants the staged response? Or worse, the email response? Mm. Oh, yeah. Did you even write that? (laughs) Yeah. So with the current role at Vogue, that role didn't exist before you have taken it. Is that correct? It is, yeah. So, cool. And how did that kind of come uh, about? Were you pushing for that or did they come to you? It was just honestly came out of a conversation. Um, we are extremely lucky at Australian Vogue now to have one of the best, I think, globally in the world, editor-in-chiefs in Edwina McCann. And she's a really genuine, visionary, brilliant, brilliant person. And she just, she's got big ideas and she's open to big ideas. So it was, it came because 
they had put together um, a sustainability issue, which was for March 2018, guest edited by Emma Watson. And the idea was that that would be entirely focused on sustainability and on responsible fashion and the kind of fashion of the future. And she's, Emma Watson is genuinely massively into sustainability. Mm -hmm. But then it was decided, why just do it for one issue? And the idea of bringing me on board was to have a focus that was continual so that it was a continuous lens from my perspective, not from everyone in the office on sustainability. That means that we're actually committed to it in the long term. And it's been an experiment, but I also think it's been a successful one. There's been quite a lot of interest just generally from the market, if you like. People are interested that there's the creation of this new role. And I'm, for me, it's been, you know, it's a dream because I get to talk about the things that I really care about and have spent years researching and trying to become an expert in. I get to do that with a heritage brand and with some authority behind the messaging, which, you know, that's not to be sniffed at. Mm. So I'm really interested. Does does the conversation kind of go past just what your um, the content that you're creating? You know, is it a conversation around the office being from a magazine, you know, like things like paper wastage and all of that, like, is it a larger conversation, like minimal waste in the office? Um, I don't know, putting dollars towards more sustainable practices, things like that. You know, it's a good question. I, I can't answer it re- really well because I don't work in the office. And I, I'd, I'd be lying if I said to you that I'm impacting on how people think about their composting or their plastic use in the office. Um, what I would say is that People that work in media, and this includes all of the Vogue team, are absolutely looking at the zeitgeist and where the cultural conversation is shifting. That's their job. And that everyone I know at Vogue is actually interested in this stuff, even if they're not working specifically in sustainability and I'm just the weirdo doing that. Mm -hmm. Everyone is engaged in it. And I think right now in the cultural moment we're in, you can't escape the need to look at waste, to look at carbon, to look at all of it. I think it's so cool that there's been, you know, such a shift over the last like 10 or even five or even two years that there's now the need for this role and everybody's kind of recognizing, okay, we really need to change the way the fashion industry operates. How did that kind of come about for you? How did that shift happen from working in fashion to taking a step back and going, okay, wait, there's a problem here and I, I want to be part of the change? I had to actually be like, Listen to Steph, Claire. Listen to Steph. Because I was thinking, oh, my God, I need to go in the office and check if people are using plastic straws or not. I need to go and get some systems in there to make sure we're composting. <laughs> <laughs> um, how it happened for me was that there were two things. And there was a catalyst in the form of Rana Plaza. So it's quite fantastic that you invited me on your show during or in the run up to Fashion Revolution Week. Yes. It was no um, coincidence. So as you would know, but maybe if listeners don't know, I might just say what that is. Absolutely. So it's a global campaign that was founded in the UK, but is now everywhere, like over 100 countries, um, called Fashion Revolution. And it's hinged on this idea of a hashtag called Who Made My Clothes? And the idea that if we all shared that on social media and asked brands to to answer that seemingly simple question, we could change the way that the industry operates. We could have more transparency. We could understand who is that in the supply chain? How are they being treated? And are they being treated fairly? And where are the problems? The campaign was born out of a disaster that happened in Bangladesh in April of 2013. I remember that. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. I was at uni at the time and I was just watching it. It was terrible. And I think like so many people felt that. I remember watching it on the news and just seeing those images of those buildings collapse going, what on earth? Like, first of all, I didn't understand what it meant as we didn't. Mm -hmm. 
but do you remember that as well? Do you remember that unfolding? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, the story was a really gross one. So um, these buildings in a factory complex outside of, of Dakar in a place called Savar in Bangladesh, they has lots of different factories uh, making for multiple brands. The buildings had started to show visible cracks, and so it was clear that they were, they were unsafe. But the workers were ordered back inside them the next day because of the pressure of orders to be fulfilled. So it was like, we know that this is not a safe working environment. Mm. However, we got work to do, so we'll do it at your expense. Now, at your expense meant that when the buildings collapsed, 1,138 people died. No way. I didn't remember it being so many people. Well, first of all, I remember that because actually it was in early reporting, we were hearing about 100 people have died or maybe more than 150 people or maybe 300 people. But in the end, those numbers climbed to that level and it's just absolutely horrifying. And and some more gross numbers that will shock you. Up to 2,500, we think children were orphaned as a result oh my god as we know seeing a lot of videos of children just like crying it was really really shocking and and i was at uni studying fashion and textile merchandising at the time and it was definitely like a big conversation that we were having before that happened and then it was like just i don't know funny timing that it happened while we were kind of doing that subject and we were like this is exactly what we've been talking about did it make you freak out and worry that you're working in this industry Um, at the time, I don't think it did. Like there was definitely a disconnect for me, like in the immediate to be like, oh, well, like I don't buy from brands that like would produce there and whatever, you know, I guess like that's quite naive. Um, but definitely like through our journey to like, you know, particularly like starting our own label and having our own suppliers, that's something that like has always been like, okay, no, we we go to visit, we see, like we make sure we choose the right ones because, yeah, I mean, I think that even being a small brand, like we we all have something to say for it. It can also be even harder or perhaps not even harder, but it can be very difficult for small brands to know what to do because how are you supposed to go and check out the factory? You can't afford auditors. You probably can't afford a plane ticket to go and have a look. And if you did go, they may well say, well, sorry, you can't come and see. Or they may say, okay, you can come. Here's our glossified, beautiful version of what we want you to see. But you might not know that that work is being farmed out to second and third contractors who might be working at home with no safe conditions or being paid shoddily so what what happened as a result of this big big humanitarian disaster that was caused by the fashion industry is that all these questions started bubbling up and then people started asking them in a wider context so instead of saying well Benetton produced in that factory but if you didn't you're not culpable so we don't have to worry about it what the fashion revolution campaign and also all of the reporting around it has done is change the conversation so that we have to look at all of the system and say, well, that was one factory and the worst example, but it's not the only one. Totally. So, I mean, we found out about Fashion Revolution Week only very recently um, because we love to be transparent about who makes our shoes. We personally go twice a year. We go to China. We visit the factories. Um, we make sure that it's an That's ideal working great. environment. Yeah. And we were posting Insta stories and posting the factory workers and the suppliers and, and writing things about them. Like, you know, 
these are their names, these are what they like to eat, this is where they like to go and go on holiday and, you know, kind of humanizing them because people just kind of, you know, they don't have a face. And then someone said to us, there's this thing called Fashion Revolution Week. Did you do it without knowing that that was part of a campaign? We had done this. We did it on a small scale. So we just did it with like our three head suppliers there um, and just like a cute little like Insta stories thing that you could click through. Because you were curious. Yeah. And then like, and And we love asking. And we love them. Like, you know, we don't have anything to hide. I think that's a thing that like, like in the beginning, we were a bit like, oh, should we be being cagey about who our suppliers are and where they are? And then we were like, well, no, like they're actually... Just fant- because it was China. That was yeah. why we were like, oh, should we not be talking about China? Is that taboo? Are people not going to want to buy from a label that's made in China? I think that, Steph, you raise one of the biggest problems, if you like, with this whole area. Well, there's two kind of sides to it. One is that you can be overly simplistic about it. Like, oh, sustainability. You know, it's just that lends itself to greenwashing but you know it's just it's green or it's fair it's all fine so we kind of we try not to make it too complex but the other side of it is that the complexity is just rampant and it's really difficult for people to unpick it all and once you start getting into one side of it you fall down the rabbit hole you can read you I could spend a whole day reading reports about water toxicity from the denim industry Hmm. really you're going to do that as a shopper so the complexity is actually a problem it's a problem for people who just love fashion it makes them switch off so we've got those two sides of it like either the kind of oversimplification simplification that makes it meaningless or you've got this kind of crazy weight of research that we cannot expect people who just want to buy a beautiful dress to get involved with so I feel like our job and I include you as storytellers is to try and cut through that put a bit of a human face on it make it fun if you can make chemicals fun good (laughs) if you can make the stories of boring reports about carbon pollution accessible then you've done something amazing Mm. and what you really want is just an emotional connection so we all love clothes. Like we were talking about it before. Why do you love the fashion industry? Why did you start? Why do you love that dress, that shirt, that shoe? If we could make the, those feelings applicable to the human stories around how our clothes are made and the potential environmental impacts, then we've done something really good. Yeah. And so talking about like, you know, simplifying versus the complexity of the issue, like I'd love to to have you here who is an absolute expert like you know if there was a uni student who um you know loved fashion that you know they could afford to shop at zara and get all the things that they wanted you know what what is what would you be telling them like why should they care about this on a very simple level i mean the first thing i say is who wants to be into unsustainable fashion we were talking about old era versus new era to me irresponsible unsustainable fashion is not a goal and if it were a goal it's a pretty poor one isn't it i'm not excited about that i want to be part of the dazzling future that's where we're all headed not the kind of boring past where we did everything wrong now i'm not suggesting the future's all perfect and the past all sucks however we're in a watershed moment where sustainability is becoming mainstream and it's becoming it's absolutely the future so anyone who's getting into fashion as a student this is how you need to be thinking if you're not thinking like this I would say you're going to fail because the industry isn't going to be open to old thinking fashion's really fast moving new jobs of the future are about understanding how impacts on people and planet figure into the design process all this stuff around circularity like do you know what that is so Mm -mm. So that's uh, another one of those words. Right. Yeah, we're working on ours at the moment. But, but can you explain to yeah, people like, that might not know what it is? Super simple. The old linear economy is take, make, discard. So that means you go and take the resources. So think of them as coal, right? So 
Polyester is derived from petroleum, which is derived from oil. So you go and take the oil out of the ground, then you turn it into polyester, then you make it into something, and, and then, then it you gets thrown discard out. it. Yeah. So you think about all the stuff that's gone into making that garment. You've got all the natural fossil fuel resources that are finite. We don't have them forever. Then you've got all the human ingenuity, all the hands and all the effort. 80 pairs of hands on average touch a garment from start to finish. So all that human effort has gone into making it. Then you've got to sell it. The whole system is geared towards effort, right? And then you throw it away. It's yeah. completely stupid. Yeah, Take, the throw make, it away discard. part doesn't make any sense. How is it efficient? Yeah, so the closed loop part then comes in by at the end of its life. Then I guess like for us, we're looking at how we can take back our shoes and then like yeah. use it to recreate shoes or recreate something else. So and yeah, I got excited some, then. Yeah, mm-hmm. we've been meeting with um, some incredible people who are in shoe recycling and yeah, yesterday a guy came to our office and it's someone we kind of like gave um, the job to someone in our office and we were like, you know, can you find someone who can take the shoes? And he was he came over yesterday and he was like, oh, well, I could actually take the material on your upper and put, turn it into yarn and make a carpet for you. And Get like out. he started like saying, oh, he's like, we could make tires from this part. And it's pretty amazing what you can do if you just ask and start to research. I'm so excited to hear that. Um this is kind of new stuff, although some of it, in a way, is old-fashioned because we always used to be more mindful of resources. But the upcycling innovation and tech side of how we can take stuff that's worn out and then make it into something new, mm. thereby closing the loop because you're feeding it back into the system. I'm drawing a circle in the air. So instead of discard, you're going back to the beginning and using it again to make something new. That's, that's what the future is. It's so interesting that you're talking about shoes because it's something that really we haven't started to see the possibility of. Like right now, I throw my shoes in the landfill bin. I am so sorry. So I think really hard about never throwing anything away, but we can't recycle shoes in this country. So yeah. there's no service. You, there's nothing to do. Yeah, well, so that's if the issue you could we've do been that, facing that, um, you know, we've, we've found someone that we think because we have a shoe label. So we're like, we we can't bear the thought of all these shoes sitting there in landfill. Yeah, we like obviously we always it. encourage our customers to like, you know, pass them on to like a salvos or a friend, like at the end of when they've had enough of them. But like now we're talking about, okay, well, what about at the end of its life? Once like you've stomped on it for mm-hmm. many, many years, then what happens? If you've got, uh, for example, organic cotton, that hasn't even been tainted with any chemicals, you could compost that thing. It can keep going back into the system, right? But if you've got a complex thing which is made from different materials, like a shoe that might have wood or rubber and fabric and leather and metal, then you've got to try and disassemble all of that. And that's actually really complicated. It doesn't mean it can't happen. It just means it's it's the next phase. Yes. I think there are a lot of, um, you know, sustainable labels out there. Majority of them are like, you know, I want to say a plain aesthetic. You can, I was about to say a t-shirt. Yeah. Some you know, hemp like, pants. Yeah, just it's like, just <laughs> even, like, even like there are like a lot of swimwear labels coming up and things and they're all a plain aesthetic. A lot of them are a plain aesthetic. And for us, we like to be really out there. We know you love sparkly, beautiful things. And that's where I guess some people switch off at the moment because they hear sustainability and they're like, boring, I'm not into that plain aesthetic. And that's something that, you know, really excites us. We really want to, you know, our products that we create are definitely out there and beautiful. Um, Is that something you think that is going to be coming through more in the sustainable sector now? It's been slower coming. Um, You're absolutely right about, you're not right about hemp. Because <laughs> not only is not all sustainable stuff made of hemp, but also hemp is quite sexy. Like Kit X is 
Kit X is designed by my friend Kit Willow, yep. who we were just with here at David Jones doing this Fashion Revolution event today. But Kit's really all over hemp. She loves it. Oh. And she's making it like super glamorous. So actually... Okay, I was just imagining, you know, like some... like A hessian ha- sack. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like some skin-coloured pants, but not the nice skin colour. I'm just totally giving you shit now, but hessian sack's also very chic. Um, <laughs> seriously. So I was at the Green Carpet Awards, which is Livia Firth's initiative that runs in at the last day of Milan Fashion Week in September, where they it's like a red carpet event at La Scala with all glamorous celebrities, and they are awards for sustainable fashion and ingenuity in that realm. And the best emerging designer last year in September 2018 had used upcycled coffee sacks. Oh, my God. You, I'll send you a picture. You can put it on your social media. Okay. Um, I can't say his name. I want to try Gilberto Calzorardi. Great okay. Italian accent. We don't know what it's supposed to sound like, but that sounded pretty Italian to me. He had used these coffee sacks, which are just sacks, and then made them into evening wear, and they're embellished, and they're glamorous, and you wouldn't believe. But the T-shirt aesthetic has loomed most large, I think, and it really, it's a struggle for me because I like glitter. You do. I know mm. we actually... Glitter is bad for the environment. Yeah, oh, we... it's so bad. We're we not created allowed some it. glitter shoes, and then everyone was like, those are bad for the environment, and we were like, crap. And then we discovered metallic instead, which was the Um, next best thing. Good news. There is a new company called Sustainable Sequins Company or something like that. Writing that down. Same. Uh, I'll find the exact name for you. But I found out about these guys in Amsterdam at this, the first sustainable fashion museum in the world called Fashion for Good. And they're using, they're developing completely biodegradable sequins. But at the moment they have created them that are using a high content, I'm not sure if it's like 70% of recycled plastic with a biodegradable shiny bit. Cool. Oh, that's amazing. I have seen people at Coachella this week posting about their biodegradable face glitter, which is cool. Bio, yeah, bio glitter. I mean, it's happening and we need to do that because basically glitter is plastic. Yeah. And we need to be able to sparkle. Like, I'm glad I'm with my people because you're all totally shiny and I love it. If this is your aesthetic, you are just not going to go jump in that hemp plain t-shirt box in order to be sustainable so we need more creative emerging designers to be melding those two things of high fashion sensibility with responsible production and sustainable materials so funny that you mentioned emerging designers because we realized that we actually met you many years ago at an emerging designer at show. a burger joint actually in yeah. the sky yes yeah. it was like a uh, what are those things called it was like a train carriage a crate, was yeah it? a train carriage maybe it and was it was like a tram it was carriage hanging off the side of a building and now it's called easy's burgers i believe is i it? think then it, it was called easy's i think it, it was the launch it was just about to launch oh, okay. and nixie killick we had her fashion show there who is so so awesome and incredible not even emerging anymore she's mm. a bit of an established designer now it was during melbourne fashion week or melbourne fashion festival i forget um and graham lucy who is the f- so it was, CEO. It, was, it was Melbourne Fashion Festival because Graham yeah. took me. And he said, you've got to see this. It's really great. And to me, that was the highlight of the whole week because it was a scene. And we were talking before about what drives us into fashion land. And for me, I like creative dressing and subcultures and the scene around design. And that was just so cool. I remember everyone. It was like a party. You know, yeah. people all queuing up. Like looking at the queue to get in that place was just as interesting or perhaps not just as but equally as interesting as what was on the runway and it just felt like this is a fashion happening and a fashion moment and you were there and you were a moment and I loved it. 
Yeah, you're right. I I remember distinctly waiting downstairs and we were somewhere in the north of the city in Melbourne and everyone was just like way cooler than us. Yeah. And it was just like But I remember you very distinctly because you were fantastically dressed and it was well, like we, a big explosion. I think explosion we were dressed of, in Nikki. Oh, Nixie. we were dressed in Nixie. You're right. We usually are. So we've been to a couple of shows of hers since and everyone just like she has this tribe that follow her and like they all love to dress in her clothes and they have the hair and like the face makeup on. It's pretty incredible. So we have a lot of emerging designers that we love. We actually discover a lot of them through Vamp's National Graduate Showcase which is where we found Nixie. Oh. We also found um, Natasha year. Fag. We found Haley oh, Elsa Essa. Um, and even in London, we look at the um, design schools there. Like Cleo Pepiat is this amazing oh, British yeah. designer who we wore to London Fashion Week. Do you have any yes. fave up and comers? So I was going to say, I went to the Vamp National Graduate Showcase this year and it was just so, so did we. great. I thought it was head and shoulders above anything I'd been seeing internationally. It was really good. It was such a strong year, I thought. It was. It um, was incredible. A guy called Benjamin Garg, I don't pronounce that very well, G-A-R-G, um, who's out of the RMIT um, master's program. I think he's phenomenal. He's like Indian Molly Goddard. Mm. So like extremely pleated and layered. Um, it's like a traditional Indian gauze fabric, but he's dragged it kicking and screaming into the modern era. Absolutely amazing. Like I sent it to Vogue Italia and said, get this guy. Uh, who else? Oh, my um, God. Cool. Replica Project, which is Mandy Nichols's label. She just won an award. She used to work for Baz Luhrmann. Um, <gasps> yes. Both of these two people are very interested in sustainability, which made me punch the air. <laughs> um, and then also um, talking about Nixie Killick and all those kind of scenes I look for it in London and that's where it lives it really does I just went to the yeah. St Martin's show um just which now. is a fashion school in Central London. St Martin's is like the big fashion school in London where all the not everyone goes but lots of big names are ex-students of St Martin's and their show is a riot like it's it's a scrum it's so much fun it's so it's like we were talking about the democratization you gotta go next time if you just ring them up they'll let you go yeah absolutely and then it's all the best graduates and it's just electric and everyone in the audience is just as good to look at awesome so if there's anyone listening and they're really interested in sustainable fashion they might not shop in a sustainable way at the moment Mm. um you know they might be looking for affordable options and they love fashion and like we said sparkly and everything what are some just quick easy tips that they can take to really start on on a sustainable journey good news on this front because actually it's got so much easier so you can go couple of routes one is to use what's already in existence so shop secondhand swap with your friends become a thrifter be a flea market haunter mend um make make your own if you've got that do it it's so great so that's one way and that's part of the circular economy and part of the future of how we're going to turn this ship around but also support designers doing good stuff so support the emerging designers who are placing sustainability at the center of their practice buy their stuff buy their show pieces if you want to wear amazing creative things and then in a more accessible way we're seeing real change where big retailers are completely changing the game so in this just this week the iconic has launched a new functionality where you can shop your values across 6,000 SKUs on the website it's huge so it's very easy it's very accessible anyone can do it search for vegan search for fair work and you will find loads of different options and just finally we're recording this in the David Jones office where I just was invited to come and talk about fashion revolution and there the big department store is behind the fashion revolution campaign and they're highlighting the work of lots of Australian labels that are really pushing sustainability and I will name check them because they're all fabulous amazing basic 
Outland Denim, Kit X, Manning Cartel, some more. Was there nobody denim? Nobody yeah. denim. Yeah. There's eight of them. Well, I'm Toots missing someone actually, at Vera, uh, Victorian Woods. Toots oh. is actually stocked at David Jones. And you will see this week that we're going to be releasing our pictures that we took when we yes. were in China last month of our team all with their I made your shoes signs. Oh, that's so great. And yeah. honestly, just the fact that a big department store is getting behind this for the second year in a row, the Fashion Revolution campaign, it shows that we're actually mainstreaming this conversation. And that means everyone can join in. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. So cool. Killed that. Okay, let's do two quick fires because you really got to go. Um, what's the most British thing you do or habit you have? Crisp sandwiches. Okay. What's crisp sandwiches? Like chips. You, just, you know, it's a sandwich. You put chips in it. Oh, yum. I want to try that. Like with butter or something? Mm, bit of cheese if you're lucky. Great. Um, who is the most interesting person you've ever interviewed? You two. You haven't interviewed us. Why not? That it's was a two-way real, conversation. That was very nice. You really very. want to get to the airport. You're like, love, ah, Percy, the guy's so much. All right. Um, I'm going to say I've had the most fun this week with you two. The most famous person I've interviewed is Queen Bay. And the most inspiring person I've interviewed is Ellen MacArthur, who is uh, the founder of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which is the font of all knowledge about circularity. Very Amazing. cool. All that right. Anything cool. you want to plug before you head to the airport? Um, I think we need to have a massive war on plastic pollution. And if you want to be an activist, just start in your own life and start kind of rooting out the plastic in your day-to-day life. Even the glitter. Oh, no. Go go bio glitter. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. I'm so happy we got to have that conversation on the podcast. I think it's super important that people are starting to talk about these issues around sustainability and fashion, but it doesn't need to be like drab, boring statistics and pie charts as Claire said. It can still be creative, positive and colorful. This week, we have a question from Shay on Instagram. She has asked, where do you get your inspo for your tubes collections? I love the latest one. Oh, thank you so much, Shay. Um, we do travel a lot, so we get a lot of inspo from that. But then honestly, it's just like Instagram, people walking down the street, even like when a really great song comes on the radio. And then like from there, we just Pinterest the hell out of it. Um, we also look on business of fashion because they always post like really great images from all the catwalks around the world. Funny that you said music every time I have to do some writing. So I do a lot of our writing on the website and not on our content. And I always find that listening to a song that I feel like encapsulates what I'm writing about really gets those creative juices flowing. Hundo P. So if you want to ask us a question on absolutely anything, you can leave a review in the podcast app or leave a comment for us on Instagram. Next week on the podcast, we have another In Conversation app coming up with the two of us. You might remember a little while back that we posted a video on Instagram talking about how social media gives us anxiety and it had a really massive response and really resonated with people. So we're going to be elaborating on that and we'll be honest, it's still giving us anxiety, but we feel like it's something that's really important to share and talk about. It's going to be a super candid chat. We'll just be really honest about how we feel towards Instagram, but then also about how we can start using Instagram for good because there is so much good that can be done with it that we feel like we're not utilizing it for right now. Have a wonderful week and we will see you next Monday. See you then.